You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And Ryan O, co-host. And so today we're going to talk about your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, your motor cortex, your hippocampus, your occipital lobe, parietal lobe, and uh, temporal lobe, and all the lobes and uh, parts of your brain. Yay. Kind of. Are you excited? (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. So this episode comes from a suggestion by Steon. He lives over in Denmark, so thank you for that. Um, And what he said was, Essentially, can you guys look into this topic and cover the topic of neurobabble? Yeah, and especially how when you hear neurobabble to maybe be guarded against it maybe a little bit and what it is, how it it might affect you and some strategies to be prepared to deal with it, I guess. Exactly. He said people think that neuroscience and neuropedag... I think it's neuropedagogic. (laughs) Yes, um, can like explain a lot of behavior, and it's very important when it comes to learning interventions over there. Right, and that people write books about this, and that pe- people publish articles like this, news reports are published like this. Is it's so common to hear neurobabble out in the world, and so uh, he suggested doing a whole theme about this, and we thought, man, this is just completely in line with what we're up to on this show, and what a great suggestion. So uh, this is it. This is our episode. So thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, so let's start with what do we mean when we talk about neurobabble? Yeah, so I guess um, what I found on this is an actual term that sort of exists out there. And at the same time, it's not really a, it's not like a field, it's not a line of research, but people talk about this neurobabble thing. And if you just look up in Wiktionary or Wikipedia, or if you look this up online, what you're probably going to find is a definition that goes something like, it is the jargon used by neuroscientists. And for those of you who don't know, neuroscientists are doctors or scientists who study the brain and how the brain works primarily. And there are people who use the terms that neuroscientists use when they're doing study to communicate with other people. And specifically, People who are using neurobabble are not just talking about their research, but are doing so in such a way as to influence the people they're talking to, to believe them more. Yeah, and that's a very big thing to remember when we're talking about this topic. (laughs) Right. Um, Because we're not trying to corner ourselves against neuroscientists, right? Exactly right. Yeah, neuroscience is an awesome field, and there are people who have sort of adopted what has been accepted about neuroscience and, and the neuropsychology and all of that to just be more persuasive in their arguments and that they use references to neurology and neuroscience to lend credibility to their argument specifically for the purpose of persuading people to agree with and buy into the argument that they're making. And I mean, this occurs all over the place. So we're going to get into some examples. Yeah. Just to highlight the, we always talk about like having a kind of interdisciplinary view on psychological things, right? Right. Um, So to give an example of a uh, conference I was at, we had a panel discussion. I made sure to try to find someone that had this neuro um, science background to speak on these sort of things. It's like, a great idea. Yeah, and she shared a perspective that I shared as well when it comes to psychology, but mm-hmm. she also knew that area in addition. So I just want to make it real clear to listeners, like we do value those sort of things. It's the way it's being used. And I would actually love to get a, neuro- a neurologist or neuroscientist on the show because I have lots of questions I'd love to ask from a professional who would be willing to do that. And so that might be something we do in a future episode. Um, That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I could totally get her on. Cool. 
All right, and so to kick this off, to really talk about neuroscience, there was this great quote in the article that was recommended, and um, I, I believe this is, I have the citation right, there was, there was a couple citations, and I think this is correct, was uh, Diego Fernandez Duke, Jessica Evans, Colton Christian, and Sarah Dodges in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience in 2015. And I'm just going to read this quote because it really summarizes so beautifully what we're talking about in this neuroscience thing. Do you want to read this? Sure. Okay. All right. Does the presence of irrelevant neuroscience information make explanations of psychological phenomena more appealing? Do fMRI pictures further increase that allure? To help answer these questions, 385 college students in four experiments read brief descriptions of psychological phenomena, each one accompanied by an explanation of varying quality. Um, such as good versus circular, and followed by superfluous information of various types. Ancillary measures assess participants' analytical thinking, beliefs on dualism and free will, and admiration for different sciences. In experiment one, superfluous neuroscience information increased the judge quality of the argument for both good and bad explanations, whereas accompanying fMRI pictures had no impact above and beyond the neuroscience text, suggesting a bias that is conceptual rather than pictorial. For superfluous neuroscience information was more alluring than social science information and more alluring than information from prestigious, quote, hard sciences. Analytical thinking did not protect against the neuroscience bias, nor did a belief in dualism or free will. We conclude that the, quote, allure of neuroscience, end quote, bias is conceptual, specific to neuroscience, and not easily accounted for by the prestige of the discipline. It may stem from the lay belief that the brain is the best explanation for mental phenomena. Okay, perfect. Thanks for reading that. And so first, um, what they did is they compared the perceived quality of both sound scientific and nonsense arguments by adding these jargony sounding phrases, okay? And then they, um, the quality was raised for both the legitimate science as well as the nonsense arguments um, as long as they had included that that neuroscience-sounding jargony language in there. Yeah. If they threw on these terms, then people are more likely to rate those, uh, those reports as sounding more scientific. So it was the quality of the concept of neurology that was really influential in this one. And what's interesting is uh, before I had reported when we did our, I think it was the fMRI one, episode that I had read a study where they had shown people pictures and that the, that they were more likely to believe a study if it had a picture of a brain on it. Well, this study actually found something very different where um, when they had shown them pictures that didn't actually uh, impact the perceived quality of the study and it was really just the concept of those terms that was being thrown around. So I guess there's you know diff- competing information there, but, uh, but that's really interesting that they did find that this that if you added those terms in, then regardless of the quality of the science, people were more likely to see it as quality science just because they had those neurobabble terms. And I think the second point in here to talk about is that they compared neurobabble to legitimate social science research and saw that even when the neurobabble, the nonsense stuff, was added uh, was added in there, that people saw that as more well or more high quality than the legitimate um, science that was from the social sciences field. And then the third and fourth experiments that they did, they specifically compared the analytic thinking skills of participants and found that they were susceptible to this neurobabble regardless of what their incoming sort of prior thinking skills were or their beliefs. So even people who had the, they were more likely to be, um, believe either toward or against science, it didn't really matter. They were influenced by neuro-sounding terms even when they were nonsense terms. So really interesting study that capitalizers really showed that 
if you simply throw on terms like you know talking about the cortex and talking about the the amygdala and the hypothalamus and neurotransmitters and um, and glial cells and how those are all Im- implicated in something it doesn't even matter if it makes any sense it's it sounds better to people and we'll talk about why that is in a moment but that's just uh, what was at least found in the study which was super interesting so with your background in uh, like your healthy eating habits you're pretty good at that have you seen and ran into this a lot uh, yeah, totally. Um, unfortunately, diet research, or at least the way that it's communicated, diet research is, is fine, but a lot of times when you read blogs and you get in these popular posting sites that people write about these, they throw in this neurobabble stuff all the time. And there's an example of this from uh, Dr. Oz is uh, really a... Um, a, someone who uses a lot of this sort of thing. A proponent of neurobabble? <laughs> yeah, well, I think he doesn't really, it's not like that's his go-to strategy, but he uses it a lot. Um, and there was one specific example that we're talking about the use of uh, wheat germ, and that they, the, so they, they use a lot of terms in here that's sort of capitalizing on neurobabble and other sort of uh, science sounding terms. And so he talks about the homocysteine and amino acid linked to strokes. And so they, uh, the wheat germ is loaded with these B-complex vitamins that reduces these uh, homocysteine and amino a- acids that are linked to strokes. So if you eat more wheat germ, you're, more li- you're less likely to have strokes. And then they talk about... Um, these black currents, and that those nourish the brain cells surrounding the hippocampus, so we're a neurobabble term in their hippocampus, and also talking about brain cells a little bit, and then talking about uh, antioxidants and all of that, and that all these improve uh, memory and brain processing power and all of this sort of all, all these sort of things. And none of the like a lot of that doesn't mean anything. What does it mean to improve brain processing power? How would you even measure that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's yeah, and we're we're paraphrasing this from a skeptic article that uh, Steon actually sent in from us. Yeah, absolutely. Us. Yeah, um, and I was going to mention that Deepak Chopra. How yeah, do you say that? Yeah, Deepak Chopra. That's right. Um, was also linked all over that site. So yeah. when we say they or he, it's one of these two people that are talking like this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good clarification. And uh, another one that that Deepak Chopra specifically used was he was talking about uh, the Dreamweaver. And that um, this passes light pulses through the brain with your eyes closed and it plays music at certain frequencies so that your brain waves would dial into it and then you could dial the instrument down so it decreased the brain frequency used. And this has to do with um, trying to like just modulate, I guess, how your thinking was occurring. And so they specifically point, it, point out in this article I thought was really funny and completely accurate, which is um, what is what does your brain waves dialing into it even mean? What, what would that refer to? You know, when we talk about brain waves, that is an output as a measurement device that was calibrated to respond to uh, electrical impulses in the brain. The brain isn't actually waving at anything. It really has to do with the frequencies at which the neurons fire and that they fire at certain hertz, but that's, that's not actually like a brain wave. And what does it mean to dial into that? And how would it dial into it? Uh, so yes, the frequencies mean all of these sort of things are just sort of these neural babble terms that are just, they make it sound really credible of, you know, if you shoot lasers in my eyes and that's going to dial in my brainwave frequencies that affects the glial cells, it'll increase the cleanups that'll it'll improve my memory. That sounds like it has all the, the terms that we hear in neuroscience, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah, so the important thing here is that we're talking about, like, the use of it is for influencing, right? Right. And is it really the factor that 
uh, like those specific neurobabble things, are those really the factors going on or are they just being misused or kind of misthrown around? Right. And to kind of get at this like dialing brainwaves, um, to kind of like give an example of that is like, we're not opposed to these sort of things necessarily. I'll give an example of uh, Elon Musk recently, recently when we were recording, sometime in June, was announcing that um, he would like to start a program or has been playing around with the idea of starting a program where you insert chips into the brain essentially. Um, and the goal there is that it's to help you loosely keep up with AI because the progression of AI is going to go so fast. Sure. Um, and like, I would like to think on like that level, like we could potentially use this neural babble in a non-neural babble sort of way. And maybe you can end up down the road with very well-controlled things and technologies, you know, 10, 100 years from now that do these things that Deepak and such are talking about. But at this moment, like, are we really doing those things? <laughs> no. <laughs> and like, do you buy that? No. And I mean, no. I guess we're somewhere we could go. Uh, well, as far as the AI thing, there's, there's a lot of people who are pretty skeptical about whether or not AI will actually be developed. And of course, a lot of people think that it will. So I'm not going to weigh on either side of that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, I think that we will be better at understanding how the brain works in such a way that we can capitalize on its existing systems potentially. And at the same time, I don't think that it's ever going to make sense to say that if you eat acorn squash, you're going to be a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, or that any one food, you know, is going to be this, eat more of this and you'll just, you'll have a better brain. You know, there, it, it really comes down to what we're going to understand about nutrition in general. And yeah. that's not going to be so simple as more acorn squash means better memory. It's yeah, just not that, it's think, not that simple. I think the point I was trying to make is like us saying something like, uh, how do we dial into brainwaves? Right. Like oh. I'm kind of like laughing at that. Yeah. Like we're not against that necessarily. It's the way in which it's being presented. Right. And like the truth that they're putting behind it right now. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, can, I, can, I went off in the wrong direction. Okay. Cool. Yeah. No, Sorry. But I, I wasn't very articulate on that either no it's okay i think that yeah you're i think that it's perfectly reasonable reasonable to believe that as we learn more about how the brain works we'll be able to better interact with those systems through technology through measurement and and maybe even capitalize on making them better i don't think personally we'll ever reach a point at which we can quote unquote read someone's mind but we could potentially reach a point where we can really improve the efficiency of certain systems and the way that the brain works Potentially. Yeah. We've also gone through, you know, hundreds, I think hundreds of thousands, let's just say tens of thousands of years of evolution uh, to get our brains to the point that they're at now. So it's possible we won't be able to improve on it as much um, just with technology as we, as our brains have already been improved through evolutionary yeah. processes. Yeah. And there was one other study to talk about before we get into some of the pop culture and pop psychology of this, which was how people interact with these, these neurobabble terms on and the platform that they looked at specifically was Facebook, and I know you you actually found this one. Yeah, so this is like related to the neurobabble, but it's not necessarily them using neurobabble all the time. Sure, but it was something that was just like really related. So I thought we'd bring it up and maybe see how it fits in. Um, and that was there's been a few different people now. I think this really started as a trend in like 2014 ish with something NPR did, um, if I remember right. But um, it's been done by a bunch of different news outlets. And essentially what they do is they look at the degree to which something is shared or commented on, and they look at the number of opens to that actual link. So okay. they play around with clickbait and the headlines. Um, and it's not in a bad way necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about like NPR. We're talking about um, another one was the, the website uh, I love science. And what they did is... IFLS. <laughs> 
Um, and what, what they did is they basically put up this clickbait there to see what actually happens. Um, so a good example is one of them, there's a study where they looked at 70% of Facebook users weren't even opening the link, they were just sharing it based on the title. And like that's, leaving, leaving comments on it. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like 70% is insane. Um, and it gets into a lot of other things, like this confirmation bias and stuff that sure. we kind of talk about. Um, it tells you a lot, I think, though, as a marketer for how to get your stuff out there is to create a title and a headline that's going to get the most likes and the most shares. And it doesn't really matter what your content is, you know, and this is actually funny. You'll see this in movies a lot of the time that when someone's reading a newspaper, they'll have the headline in the newspaper and that's the part that you're supposed to be attending to. And that'll be the thing that you read. But if you actually pause it and read through the article, a lot of times it's just copied and pasted nonsense or it's not at all about the thing that the headline is about. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny, but that's, that's exactly, I think what you can see in some of these, it would be really amusing if they did that where they put a title and then a completely unrelated article and people were sharing it based on the title. <laughs> yeah. Here, here was a good example. The NPR, NPR article released on April 1st, 2014, which April 1st, you should be a little hesitant on what you're reading, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it was titled, Why Doesn't America Read Anymore? Um, so no neurobabble in that, right? Sure. Um, but if... Uh, the, their goal was to see how many people would just comment and start kind of like spitting off and talking about these things. And I was reading in there, neural babbles all over the place. Like that sort of stuff kind of pops into there, right? Like nice. it bleeds into that or that same idea of just like relying on these weird, you know, these terms that don't necessarily relate to anything that you're talking about, but sure. sound like they do. Yeah. And um, if you click the article and open it up, it just said, congratulations, genuine readers and happy April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and it circulated all like, over. Good idea. The one that IFLS did uh, was a lot more recent, and their title was Marijuana Contains, quote, Alien DNA, end quote, from outside of our solar system, NASA confirms. And as of today's recording, 164,500 shares. That's a lot of shares. That. that seems like a lot um, of shares. Is that a lot of shares? <laughs> it is a ton of shares. Okay. And it is a... Abraham does not social media. No. Um... <laughs> That is an insane amount of shares. Now, the problem is it was shared for both reasons. Like, it was shared inappropriately, right? Because mm. of the bias or that tendency for people to share without looking. But also, um, it was shared because it was kind of this gag one that was out there. Yeah. So, so it's, it's funny. Yeah. It's clearly not just an issue, I guess, per se, with just neurobabble and, like, the neuropsychology area, per se. Like, there's a cultural thing that's going on that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, right? totally. There's this cultural level. Right. Yeah, and in the era of... I, I, people, I'm hearing this phrase now, the era of quote-unquote fake news, which <laughs> itself has become almost fake news. It's this whole idea of, of essentially misleading stories and misleading ideas. And I think people have really capitalized on this, both as just if it's something you don't agree with, you just call it fake news and you're just like, oh, sweet. Now, and then people will read that and they'll say, oh, that's fake news. And then they won't believe it anymore when it's just a way of... of I guess, slapping down someone that maybe had something legitimate to say. And the other one is to just, it's become so prevalent now that it doesn't mean anything. People say fake news when it's just, it's just something they don't like. That's all that it even means anymore. Um, but it is this whole thing of headlines that, that communicate misinformation or um, misleading information by including things like neurobabble and then other terms or phrases or even just completely lies, you know. Yeah, so Steon, I don't know if that uh, is exactly what you're looking for and when it comes to these kind of social media headlines, but it was something I dug up when we were digging through everything, and it caught my eye. It's very interesting. Yeah, totally. And so the next step to look into this, I think, 
and we talked a lot about what neurobabel is, giving you a lot of examples, is to understand how does this work? Why is it that when we see neurobabel, we're compelled to believe it? And the first thing to really look at this is I think that this sounds very similar to scientific jargon. As a matter of fact, a lot of it is legitimate scientific terms that we've heard. So it makes coherent sense when you hear psychological terms and terms about the brain and you hear terms about brain processes that that sounds like the legitimate research. And we already have this basis that neuroscience is a legitimate, robust field that's contributing a lot. And it's, there's, if we hear something from the neuroscience field, then that's usually considered to be good information because this, it's a trusted source, right? And so if we hear something that steals from that source and borrows the same kind of language that they're using. So what they're doing is there's a couple steps in this. They're capitalizing on first that this is a well-established scientific field in the first place and that most people already know that and it's supported. And B, that most people don't have, uh, I said first and then B, first and then second, (laughs) uh, that most people have uh, not that much of an in-depth understanding of those terms and of neuroscience itself. So that... Uh, they can use these terms that people are likely to believe that to them influence things that they want them to believe because people probably don't know, most people don't know all that much about the really most recent neuroscience and a lot of the terms in neuroscience. And what does it mean if I say that your frontal cortex was involved, your occipital cortex was involved in the process of something? A lot of people aren't necessarily going to know that information, even those who have you know a, a sort of cursory education in neuroscience that that's you know, even, even that's, you know, not that very specific or uh, technical, but is maybe beyond the level that most people are going to really learn in a normal education. Yeah. I mean, I studied psychology for six years formally and still do. Right. And I do not know those areas well. Right. Yeah. I just don't. It's a, it sounds crazy, but I don't like, that's not. Well, it's a robust field and, and into itself. So people who study neuroscience, they know neuroscience and maybe don't know as much about the other psychology. And they're the people who know both. And there's people who just know um, more of the social sciences and behavioral psychology and cognitive psychology. And there's not always going to be that crossover. And so it's, it's just, it's very reasonable to expect that people aren't going to have that sort of understanding. And if you don't, then it's really difficult to distinguish when you hear the same sort of words from legitimate science from people who are just trying to uh, convince you that of whatever it is they're trying to convince you of that they're right and that they have something to sell you or whatever it's going to be, you know? Let's kind of tie this back into like other reasons or I kind of think it works is when we look at like these social platforms and I use platform because it's getting away from what you just described is like why this neurobabble kind of works. Mm-hmm. But these platforms are now like a place where you can kind of use, where you can kind of leverage this stuff and use it in a different sort of way. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to like sharing these sort of things and the share rates that we were talking about with people even not even opening them, um, it definitely has this like sense of reward of like these likes and shares that you get, right? As a result of actually sharing it yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, and like anything, like an individual level of like looking at this would be how we would really know, like, is it serving as a reward when someone shares it, mm-hmm. right? Without opening it, like we'd have to definitely look at that. Um, but I definitely think that part of the reason these things not necessarily work, but like why they kind of are propagated and thrown all over the place while they persist yeah Yeah. are these platforms are very easy to do those sort of things sure it is it is a very quick click um it's a lot shorter to just click and share than it is to click wait for the load read and then share right yeah totally um so there's a lot of interesting things there and so whether you're trying to use that as the person that's kind of 
leveraging this neural babble to get your word out there and using it in an inappropriate way, or if you're just simply sharing it for the sake of sharing it because you think it's something that's interesting, right? And you may There's, not even know that what you're sharing is illegitimate or that when you say it in the first place that it's not legitimate science that... Uh, and I don't know, like I just can't speak for some of these people who use neurobabble in their postings, whether or not they actually know that what they're saying is just kind of nonsensy, jargony stuff. And and maybe they're unintentionally using those terms to persuade people. But, yeah. you know, people are more likely to share them. They're more likely to get attention from that. They sound more authoritative when they use those terms. So there might be that those processes are involved and that they also don't really know that they're doing it incorrectly. Yeah, and if anyone wants to like dig into my public profiles, because um, mine are all public and open, I just keep them that way. You can definitely follow me, find me slipping through this historically okay. to some degree, and sure. it's gotten better and better. But like when I first got into things and was like, you know, arguing on the internet like a lot of people do, um, it was very easy to <laughs> <They're> trolling. <laughs> yeah, um, I wouldn't necessarily troll as much as argue. I think there's a difference there, but <laughs> the science of trolling—that'd be a fun one to do. That would be fun. Yeah, we need to do that. My jokes, um, my jokes spawn episodes. So anyhow, <laughs> if we if we're to the point where we have enough listeners to also have people that are trying to dig on us, like dig yeah. away, you'll find it. Um, but you should see a progression of me not doing that stuff anymore. <laughs> That's been my goal. Right. So um, the NSA really likes uh, Ryan because he's so easy to watch. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily that I was in a neurobabble, but like this idea of just kind of using technical language to try to push things forward. Right. Um, I have done in the past. So I think one of the last things that we really want to hit on then is how to recognize when something might be neurobabble and what do you do with that information or what do you do when you see something that might be neurobabble? Is there something you can still get from that? How do you talk to people who use this or who are influenced by it and that sort of thing? And one potentially uh, useful avenue is to just recognize how people sort of view the world, right? Yeah, so there's different ways and we're going to get into this in a lot more depth in another episode coming up. But there's different um, truth that we kind of like buy into, yeah. right? So, so just our overall view of the world, and that often means that some things are going to be, that are going to appear to me that are true in a sense that are different maybe to you or someone else that they think of as being true. Yeah. So without diving into that a lot, I think the first thing is trying to make sense of that, right? Sure. And sorting out like, what does this person believe in? Mm -hmm. Like what convinces them? And that's what we mean by truth. Like what convinces them? Kind yeah. of pushes them, pushes them to the point where they're like, okay, I believe this, yeah, right? That's a great way of putting it. So I think part of this idea is that when, when you are talking to someone who maybe is influenced by neurobabble, they read something and then they come to you and they say, I read this article that says that I have to do 50 push-ups and eat a whole bunch of almonds with fish in order to improve my memory, the performance of the cells around my hippocampus, which will improve my memory, or something like that, um, then you, you're, there's a lot of things you could do to respond that you could just walk out of the room. or you know, uh, prob uh, But that's not necessarily the best way to respond to it. And so instead of looking at it in terms of what convinces them, and what uh, then you can have a conversation with them where you were at their level. Yeah. So for that one, for example, maybe uh, a conversation around neuroplasticity might be fun. Okay. Right? Sure. Because... It's a nice neurobabbly term. <laughs> well, yeah. But my understanding of that is the idea is that there are a lot of changes, not only across, but within the lifetime of someone when it comes to their brain and their brain regions, right? And how the cells work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... So it might be fun to kind of create that distinction of like, hey, the research that you believe in, right, in this neurobabble might potentially conflict. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? 
Yeah, so it's not just it's not just coming at him as you're wrong. And yeah, I was gonna say it's presenting that in a very clear, kind, kind of open pro-social way. Right. Right. And that's uh, yeah. So acknowledging, you know, I understand why you feel this way, and uh, would you be convinced by this? And then maybe get them on the same page of, you know, at least find find a place where we agree, and then we can have a conversation. Because if you just start from the place of I'm wrong or you're wrong, and we just don't don't agree with each other, you really can't move forward in the conversation. And so instead of looking at okay, what can we agree on? Now we can have this discussion, and maybe I'll be the one that ends up changing my mind. You know, maybe they'll convince me that that's something else. And and at the same time, maybe they'll change their mind, or maybe we'll both change our mind. We'll learn something through that but at least if you come at it um, looking at in terms of what is your worldview what is the thing that convinces you what do you believe in um, then you have a more sort of respectful and open-minded sort of conversation than just you're wrong and you're wrong and I'm right <laughs> yeah and one way I've done this and I don't have like solid data on this um, it's very loose kind of quote-unquote mind's eye data yeah is I try to when a when possible, not only like am I would I in that example like question somebody else, mm-hmm. but I'd also show them like, hey, in the past, like I thought this one thing, and then I kind of you know employed this with someone else or with myself, and this is what I learned from it. So you're just kind of like showing that humility, I guess, of like yeah. the process, you know, like yeah. I've gone through this and I'm willing to go through this, not only with you now, like it's not solely like, hey, I'm trying to convince you. It's like, hey, let's actually have a conversation, and this is why I want to have a con- conversation because in the past when I had these conversations with others and myself, it actually led to more growth and more cool stuff in my life. Yeah, I have a and I have a similar experience where if I've been will, if I've sort of shared my journey through arriving at a particular conclusion because my opinion about things has changed a lot over time as one would hope, I think. Yeah. Um, but as I learn more and more and so I you know, have shifted on things and um, I think become more and more accurate about the things that I believe because I'm not just married to I'm always right, you know, I have to be willing to accept that there are things I don't know, then when I share that story of how I've transformed my opinion with other people, then it puts me in a position where I'm not just always right. And this is how I arrived at where I'm at, but you know, maybe there's somewhere to go from there. And I think it puts me in a position where I can be listened to and where I can listen to them. And we both sort of appreciate um, each other for our unique experiences there. Yeah. Some of the most humble, like influential and like, I don't know, like just best kind of people I've met in life have been really good at, understanding where other people kind of believe in something, like mm-hmm. where the line is of like when they believe something. Right. And when they can like really take that person's perspective on that, that's when they not only can like talk with them, engage with them more, but they also just like understand the situation a lot more. Someone gets pent up. I think that's like a core I'd love to someday be able to like really study and like look at like is this the root cause or at least a huge I'm not going to imply it's just this one factor, but is this like yeah. a big variable that's going on when it comes to just like internet trolling and all this sure. other stuff? You know, like not trolling necessarily, but like the arguments that we get in throughout all life. Yeah. Internet, non-internet. Like are those arguments a result of just we're not really realizing where someone else is coming from and what it is that they believe when it comes to these sort of things? I know. Like what proof is, like what is proof for them? And yeah. And when you understand what that is, now it's a lot easier to understand what to present to them. There definitely are some orientations in psychology where that's sort of the main ingredient in their approach to helping people deal with things is look at how where other people are coming from rather than just um, dealing with it, sort of just put yourself at their perspective and whatnot. Yeah. So um, I feel like we got a little bit off track. Yeah. On, <laughs> so I think one way to look at if you are reading a headline that sounds like neurobabble, it might be. Um, that's a, just a good general rule to have. And you just need to do a lot of investigation. So the first thing is if you see a headline that makes some 
claim that seems ridiculous, read that article and see if you can find something else that backs it up and preferably be aware of the source that it comes from. Because we find an article that's maybe if, if you're reading peer reviewed literature, good for you. And if you are, and you find an article that's in the same journal and backs that one up and maybe it's by the same authors or, (laughs) you know, they cite each other, then try and look for something else. People in science, we're really trying to correct one another and find out where we're wrong and the limits of what we think that we know. And so um, if you see a neurobabble headline, read it and be prepared to look for inconsistencies, question things. Don't just accept on its face that when people say things like your brain waves tune in or dial into it, um, what does that, what, what could that mean? And if they just say your amygdala performance improved, what does that mean? Improved is a pretty subjective term in and of itself. It might be that your amygdala performance was actually suppressed and that made it more efficient for another part of your brain to work during something. So what is improved in that situation is not just that it does more of something. It might actually do less of something and allow it to be more efficient. And so that's, I think, one thing to look for in terms of when you're being um, bombarded by this neurobabble a lot of B sounds yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that I just made. Uh, and another one I think is to be prepared to review. I mean, if you're really curious about it and something comes up and, you're, and you look at a headline and, and that's really influential to you, see if you can go find good research on that. Um, you know, and then just be prepared to question a lot of that stuff. It's um, look at the source, look at the authors, look at the funding for it. You know, if you have... A study shows that drinking Coca-Cola improves your metabolism funded by Coca-Cola, then you probably want to be pretty skeptical of that as a source, you know, um, not to throw Coca-Cola under the bus. I'll never be sponsored by them, but yeah. <laughs> threw that sponsor out the window. Yeah, we just, I just ruined it. Darn it. <laughs> um, but I'm just saying that, you know, depending on the source of that fund of who paid for that research is going to tell you something about how you should really take it. And that's one of the reasons that what people like about those government funded studies a lot of the time is that they don't have a dog in that fight, or that's a terrible expression. They don't have a horse in that race. What is it? They don't have a stake in that claim um, <laughs> that uh, of how that turns out if your funding source comes from something that um, is not going to be influenced one way or another by the results of your research. Yeah, to kind of add on that, I'd say you can look those things up. Tips and tricks on how to do that is like look for articles against for it and like read other varied perspectives on that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, so like your search terms... You need to be kind of like practicing and making sure that you're entering a lot of different search terms into those sort of things. And the the other thing that I really like to do, and I found that it's like a lot easier because all of a sudden you're just getting into this like, you need to read all this stuff. Everything you read, you need to read more. You need to read more. Is right. I've come to find people that have similar views of skepticism as well as like believe in the same things that I believe in when we're kind of talking about like how I view the world. Mm-hmm. And I rely on them. Now, I am going to be risking a little bit relying on their perspective of these sort of things. Right. But after six, eight years of working with people, like I can kind of rely on their general views and I can kind of shorten some of that sometimes. So basically it's like as I built more people that I've known, I've worked with them to kind of help me learn more quicker. Does mm-hmm. that make us make sense? Like yeah. I rely on them. It's more of a team sort of approach now as opposed to like, I'm just going to read everything and know everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I think that's a great approach. And I think the last thing I was going to say is just as a sort of general principle, because this applies not just to the neurobabble, but of sort of science babble in general is be, be skeptical. And what I mean by that is not... Um, you know, doubt everything you hear, but look for things that seem a little outlandish, that things are, especially if you feel that sense of surprise of, whoa, but really, then you might want to then take another look at that and say, um, 
I think someone was trying to get my attention with that because <laughs> that's probably what was going on. If they yeah. if they succeeded in getting you to say, "Whoa, really?" then uh, then they they accomplished their mission of getting your attention and making you maybe question what you believe. And um, even those that are a little bit more subtle, where you look at it and say, "Okay, well that makes sense." Um, there still might be one of those people who are influencing you with neurobabble to. Um, and, and getting you to have that reaction. And it's just look at that and, and make sure when you read it and say, does that really make sense? You know, ask yourself that. Because sometimes it will. Sometimes it's really legitimate stuff and it does totally make sense. And sometimes you hear terms that are like, and I'm going to just say it again because it's fun, dialing your brainwaves. And then you know, like, that's weird. What does that mean? <laughs> and so um, just look for those things that, that maybe are a little, um, that sound a little bit silly in a way. And you know, it's actually occurred to me, Sort of something, and piggybacking off of what you had said minutes ago now, um, but when I am looking, when I want to buy something, and that I'm looking at the ratings of that thing, because I'm really not sure if it's if it's worth it to get it, I actually will often go to the negative ratings first, and I'm and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if this company is paying people to leave good ratings, if the people who wrote this actually, you know, use the product first, I don't really know. What I really want to know is those people who left terrible ratings, what did they have to say? And sometimes it's just completely pointless. Um, for example, I love board games, <laughs> as many people will know about me. And um, so I, I'll get one of these obscure board games that very few people have heard of. And I'm looking at, should I buy this other board game that people are suggesting? What did this one person who gave it one star, what did they have to say? And I read the review and they and they say things like this is too complicated and I didn't like the artwork and then I'm thinking okay I don't really care what you have to say about this because that's not what I'm looking for in this game but yeah. someone might open it up and say you know this game I, I played many of the games like it this one doesn't make any sense here are all the things and they're very detailed I'm more likely to listen to that but the reason I bring this up is because a very similar approach to looking at some of these um, these neurobabble and these uh, sort of attention grabbing clickbait headlines that you might see I might look at that and say, okay, what do the people who really disagree with this have to say? What's the opposite view and where is that coming from? And then that way, and a lot of times I'll look at it and say, well, they're even crazier than the first people. And so I know that they're not right. Maybe the first people are onto something and just said it weird. Yeah. Cool. All right. I think, uh, I think that covers it for NeuroBevel. Yeah. Steon, I hope we did well. If yeah. we did not, write us in, correct us, and we will do better again. Yeah, we'll do another one. We'll, <laughs> we'll do a follow-up part two sort of thing. So I think just real quick, our overall take-home points of this are that um, look for sources that are clearly empirical, and by that what we mean are they are come from legit, legitimate scientific sources, and um, be willing to acknowledge sort of what your worldview is and where other people's worldview might be different if you're going to have a conversation with them about this sort of thing. And then finally... Uh, be willing to put in a little bit of work. If you are curious about something, if you think that you read something that shocks you, uh, and you then either just don't share it right away, have that knee-jerk reaction, I'm going to send this to everyone I know, <laughs> but do a little digging and see if you can find anything. If this process is called vetting, which is to uh, look, you know, look up the facts behind it, do some checking on those facts. Yeah, whether that's the, the article itself or the people that I was saying that you can start to rely on more and more. Yeah. I know certain people, things that are shared, I know the quality of them. Other people on my Facebook feed, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From You know, like the quality of what's being shared sometimes. So. Cool. Cool. All right, I think that's all we got. This is Abraham. And Ryan O. Signing off. Listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. 
If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Yeah.